can get started. Uh, my name is Bailey McCann. Uh, I'm the senior editor at Opalesk, and we are here to talk about private market value creation and the road to exit. Um, we've got Sanjay and David here. Uh, you guys can introduce yourselves, and then we'll get into the questions. Sure. Thanks, Bailey. Great to be here. So I'm Sanjay Patel. Uh, I'm a senior partner and chairman of our international business at Apollo Management, 34th here in the private equity credit alt space, half my career in London, half my career and probably in New York. Uh, pretty much invested across every asset class in our industry, so excited to be here. And I'm David Lebowitz. I don't have 34, 35 years of experience, clearly, um, but I work at JP Morgan within the asset management business, uh, and I do macroeconomic and asset allocation research, so very much focused on the way the world looks from 20,000 feet, and increasingly alternatives are becoming part of the solution set. Uh, that our clients are embracing to try to realize their their portfolio outcomes. So glad to be here and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Great. Thanks, guys. Um, so let's just get started with kind of a broad question in terms of how you're thinking about value creation right now. Um, like, what are the interesting themes or opportunities that you're seeing out there? May, maybe I'll kick it off. Um, you know, obviously, it's a, it's a broad, broad question. Maybe address, obviously, at Apollo we do... Um, private equity, credit, and real assets. But on the private equity side, um, you know, some observations. I mean, you think about, when we think about value creation in our business, you talk about, can you create value on the buy? Um, how do you create value when you own an asset? And how do you create value on the exit? So that's the life cycle of, of private equity. And I, I, it's interesting, I'd say, you know, having lived in the industry for decades, um, Valuations at an all-time high. However, I think we still at Apollo, for, for, from our vantage point, there are lots of ways, uh, roads to success in private equity. We still think creating value at the buy is an incredibly important component of private equity investing. Um, so we're not a we're not a traditional growth capital investor. Um, and today, there's tons of companies that you can still do that. We just you know announced a very big deal with Yahoo. Um, buying from Verizon. So here was what, you know, a classic Apollo deal, corporate carve-out. Verizon wanted to get rid of assets. A complex set of assets. We were the buyer for the whole package. There's some good assets and there's some complicated assets. Assets to lose money, assets to make money, but it's figuring it all out and creating a holistic solution. So we think it can be a very interesting opportunity. On, on the creation during the life cycle, I would say, I was listening to Dan Loeb this morning, he mentioned this concept of, you know, 30 years ago we were creating value in a certain way. 30 years into the industry, industry's development, I'd say the institutionalization of value creation has become phenomenal. So our ability to take a company um, and drive value in every aspect of it. Um, so we have at uh, Apollo, um, a team now called the Apollo Portfolio Performance Solutions Group, uh, which is a group, you know, we have data scientists, HR, ESG, uh, purchasing, everything to drive costs down, drive revenue up, think about technology, and getting the data from our portfolio companies, which we own a lot of throughout the world, every week is enormously valuable to us as an investor for both those companies and our other companies. So there's a constant life cycle, and everyone has done it. Um, you know, all the other big firms do it. I think we have institutionalized it much more in the last five years 
than in the last you know, 15 years before that. And I think that will continue. So we're, I think, better owner, owners of companies as an industry than we were 20 or 30 years ago. And you kind of create value. And then finally, on the exit, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about this, um, you have to be, even you're a micro-investor in private equity, you're buying companies, but you have to be very cognizant today on the macro. And what I mean by that is you're managing a fund, um, you've got to think about exits constantly, the public markets and the private markets, and we're constantly thinking about that um, because the life cycle of the public markets uh, and the macro you know, influences that enormously more so than it did 20 or 30 years ago. So we, we've become, I think, better sellers over the last decade that I've been at Apollo. I would agree with a lot of that. I think the, the one thing you said that really struck me and I would, I would agree with is the data side of things. You know, there, there's so much more insight into what's happening in the day-to-day. -day. You can see things with a higher frequency. You can reach out and talk to not just clients and consumers, but also experts within the industry in which you're investing. And so, you know, we, we see it from a, from a macro research perspective. We see it from, a, from more of a micro perspective when we look at the portfolio companies in the, in the funds. The ability to get a better reading of the pulse is how I would think about it, I think is a real, uh, a real source of alpha and will continue to be a source of alpha um, going forward. I think something else that's very interesting, you, you mentioned the macro, and this is really a function of what happened during the pandemic, but in the United States, you saw applications for small businesses just shoot through the roof, right? right? Mm -hmm. So you saw a huge opportunity set be created, and what we're finding now is that those companies are getting to a point where they need funding. And so I think what's also really interesting is that the pandemic, to your po again, point on the macro, kind of created this sea change within the economy broadly, very much moving away from large corporate, you know, the things that have worked well for the better part of the past decades, and really seeing tremendous growth, um, you know, in those, in those new stage companies. And so it's about looking at that opportunity set, understanding what you can do with data to, to create that operational leverage, and then to your point on the exit, you know, there's a, a chart in a, a publication that we produce called The Guide to Alternatives that overlays the share of PE deals in the software sector with investment in software as represented by the national accounts, right? Companies are investing more in technology and that has played a key role in one's ability to exit at a reasonable price. And so I, I would agree with a lot of what you said on the private equity side. I think the private credit side becomes a little bit you know, when I think about value creation in, in private credit, I tend to move more towards the, the distressed area and providing, you know, interesting financing solutions to businesses that have fallen on tough times. I, I struggle to see how there's tremendous value creation in something like direct lending. But regardless of which lever you're pulling, whether it's the equity lever or the credit lever, you know, again, I think that the data is really what's differentiating that marketplace today relative to, you know, even where we were during the prior cycle. Uh, is very much our very much our view. Can I just comment maybe on the private credit side? I I, I don't disagree with David. I think um, obviously there's well we can talk more about this. You know credit. You know certainly our firm today, at 460 billion. We have 300 plus billion, 330 billion of yield credit, um, 30 billion of hybrid capital we call hybrid capital, and 90 billion of opportunistic capital. Um, you know, and, and Mark Rowan, our new CEO, would say that our yield business is going to grow um, significantly because the demand for yield, and David and I were talking about it, you know, it's all about the demand for yield. So private equity is an opportunity business. You know, there are not that many 25% return opportunities, but if you look at 
the five to 12% yield business, um, you know, that is an engine that is gonna drive ahead with the demand on the investor side and then the creation and the origination, you know, for us becomes a very, very important question because we have to originate a lot of private credit. I think the alpha there is, you know, for us certainly I think you'll see us you know, as the bank's interest in really underwriting risk has gone down over the last decades, um, you know, we are becoming originators of that risk globally. So you're going to see us, you know, originate, you know, significant scale private credit throughout the world. You know, and we've done it. There have been some landmark transactions over the last, you know, over COVID actually, um, you know, for Hertz, for Adnoc, for big, big corporate institutions that weren't the purview of alternative players, but you're going to see us. And what we do, and I think the idea is the creation of, you know, 300 to 500 basis points of alpha over public credit risk. The way to do it is get, be able to deliver in scale, um, create structures um, that are, you know, there may be complexity, it's a structural question. You're, it's a capital solution question. So I think you're going to see our platforms over the next decade, and it's, it's pretty exciting, actually, as I, as I think about it, you know, 30 years into my career. I think the growth for us as an industry is, is, is fantastic for the next, you know, decades with rates being very low. But a big chunk of that will come in the form of the creation of these very large credit, credit solutions um, to companies all over the world. And it's not just the US. I think you're going to see very interesting things in Europe and in Asia, exactly. So I just wanted to think. I think, and then, and there, look, there's demand and there's a lot of competition. And I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll find competition, but um, at all, all points, which, as we always had. But I think being creative and providing a capital solution is critical. Exactly. So to your point about the growth of origination, and you talked about institutionalization as well in your portfolio performance group, are those areas where you feel like, are opportunities for innovation in terms of the capital solutions that you're offering to clients and you know, working with maybe more complex deals like the Yahoo deal, or how do you see that going forward? Yeah, I think, I think it's all about, I, I do think innovation is a, a big chunk of it. Um, you know, so we have upped the ante on product innovation, um, generally. I think we have focused on really how we can create these large-scale credit opportunities, and we're gonna to continue to think about it. We have been purchasers as a firm of origination platforms. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, our credit franchise has now expanded dramatically, and so we've, you know, all, you know, aircraft, trade, um, equipment finance, you know, we run, our balance sheet for credit is backed by our insurance assets and our insurance companies, um, and the demand at for those companies is typically yield. Um, a lot of it's investment grade, actually. Um, and so it's not just private credit, true private credit. Uh, but I think the way to create that is to actually own origination. And so you're gonna see us you know, focused on buying, building origination, but also buying it. So buying it, you know, buying companies that may not have scale, that need balance sheet, and we can provide that balance sheet pretty effectively. I mean, I would, I would agree with a lot of that. I also think what's, what's interesting, taking a slightly different view of the question in terms of creating these solutions, is, is rethinking what 
the end investor in these products is actually going to look like. You know, you mentioned insurance companies. I think we all spend a lot of time with big institutional investors, which if you show them anything that has yield and lack of equity correlation, you know, they want to yeah. gobble it up like Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, that, that's the holy grail in, in the current environment. And so, you know, what's so interesting to me is that as you build platforms like that and as you do more and more of the origination in-house, you can then go in and tap into another client base. You think about the retail investor who very much has the same needs yeah. as the institutional investor. You know, the bond market offers you one of two things. It either offers you protection without income or income without protection. And so when you have that scale, Right, the ability to deliver solutions to a client segment that has historically not been able to access these types of investment strategies arguably creates somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy where then you know, folks like yourselves and ourselves can continue to do what we do. We can do it at an increasingly large scale because we're able to tap into areas of the marketplace that historically have been, I don't want to say off limits, but, but far harder to reach. And so this is one of the instances where, yes, over time, the institutionalization of the private credit space will put downward pressure on the yields that these, a lot of the yields that these instruments provide, but arguably the broadening of access, I would argue, is, is a good thing from an investment solution perspective. I agree. And you mentioned, I mean, there are some issues at, in this new environment. Investors are looking for yield. They're looking for return anywhere they can find it. Um, they're not getting it in the fixed income market broadly, probably not going to get it for a while. Um, but you also said, you know, you have some questions about value creation and direct lending and some other aspects of private credit. I mean, maybe we can just talk about where you see some of the risks right now and maybe some of the bigger opportunistic themes for investors that are trying to, you know, thread that needle and find, find opportunities. Absolutely. My, my point wasn't that it's impossible to create value in, in private credit, but rather the, the private equity lever is, is an easier one to an easier one to pull. But you know, you mentioned transportation. You know, I think about core real assets in general, I mean, real estate, infrastructure, shipping, aircraft, so on and so forth. I mean, these are things that people are very comfortable with because you can reach out and touch it. Um, they provide credit-like streams of income, right, on par with the high-yield market, and they offer it with low to no correlation to, to equities. And again, the, the vehicles that are becoming available, you know, the closed-end REITs and, and various things like that, are, are allowing us to broaden our investor base in a way that historically has not been the case. And so not only do, does it feel good to help people realize their investment goals by providing these types of solutions, but, but I actually think that there's more to it, and I'll, I'll say the word that I think is on everybody's mind, I mean inflation. If, if we, we like everybody else, think inflation is going to be transitory, we like everybody else are a little bit gun shy of assigning a, a time horizon <laughs> to what transitory exactly means, but if you're sitting in investment grade, if you're sitting in high yield, you're, you're not going to have inflation protection. And arguably, if you're buying tips, you're buying a, a negative yielding instrument with a very long duration. And so to the extent that, that we're able to continue to access these opportunities, um, we think that it not only provides that income, it not only provides that diversification, but it provides that inflation protection as well. And the, the last point I'll make, because I think that this comes back to the issue of value creation. You know, a market like commercial real estate, everybody, you know, the old adage, retail is dead, retail is dead. Retail is not dead, retail has just changed, right? It's all about tenant mix. When we think about the office space, which kind of feels like the next frontier for value creation within commercial real estate, I've been of the view for a very long time that, I mean, look, the, the United States, 80% of the jobs in this country are in services. And if you're a services business, the most valuable capital you have is your human capital. 
So we need to rethink the office from a place where you know, I go to tap away in Excel for 60 hours a week to a place where I go to collaborate with my colleagues to generate better ideas and better outcomes for our clients. And so I think that, again, you know, the, the pandemic has affected certain parts of the economy more significantly than others. Structurally, I think, still think this is a 2% growth story. I think that inflation is going to remain subdued over the longer term. And you know, I'll be surprised if the Fed uh, ever gets rates up to, to a meaningful level. But that doesn't mean that there's not opportunity. It, it's more about understanding where to look. And I think that that is what is so interesting about where we are today. We know what worked in 2020. We had a glimpse of what could work in 2021 before things started going sideways over the summer during, during the spread of Delta. And so I think it's about looking through those more cyclically exposed industries and sectors and figuring out the difference between companies and assets that have seen temporary disruption versus permanent demand destruction. Obviously, we prefer the former to the latter, but it's very much an exercise of combing through the rubble in the aftermath of what's happened over the past 18 months and, and trying to identify those, those opportunities where, again, back to your first question, we're, we're able to create significant value. Yeah, I would say it's interesting as we, um, I mean, fixed income, it's just hard to imagine, you know, why, why you want to own fixed income at this point uh, in the cycle, um, you know, any institutional investor. You know, but the opportunities in yield, I mean, real estate, I, I, to David's point, I think is, is very interesting. You know, you know, one of our, you know, Blackstone, uh, one of our biggest competitors, the B-REIT that they've created, it's a pretty, pretty unbelievable product. Uh, it's got scale. Um, they, they, I, their underwriting is very good. They're careful, et cetera. That's a yield product, return of capital. So you can kind of look at the landscape and say there's plenty of ways to create alpha. Um, real estate, I think, in particular, is a very, very interesting one. But, you know, I hop back. I mean, we, we're, you know, whether it be aircraft finance or, you know, we bought an equipment financing business in the U.K. a couple of years ago in our insurance business because it was a very interesting, it was a niche business that needed, he just ran out of capital. Um, the seller, and we bought his origination platform, and you know that's a nice low double-digit yield business, etc. So I think you can. There's plenty of opportunities um, at the coalface to create, you know, really interesting yield throughout the world. Um, I think you have to find it. <laughs> I think it's not obvious um, in in some cases. In other cases, I, I think you got to create it. So to me, it's about you know investing with folks who you think are creative you know, in these, in these areas and, and finding the best managers. So let's talk about another issue that seems to come up around the value creation question a lot, which is ESG. There's questions now around climate issues that we've seen spring up, sustainability. People are focused on different issues around governance and diversity. Um, maybe you can talk us through how you incorporate those factors into your strategy and in a way that obviously creates value for the theme, but um, is meaningful for investors too. You know, maybe I'll, I'll start off. I, I, so, I, you know, we, ESG is obviously the topic du jour, um, uh, you know, and the way we think about it is that, and we have been thinking about it probably for the last decade. Uh, probably have, I think, our 12th ESG report that we did. But since we control companies, um, our view is that it starts at the portfolio company level for us as an investor, because the themes you know, that ESG reflects, whether it be the environmental footprint of your businesses, 
you know, your, your social impact, your governance, um, your DEI focus, your board focus. So what we've done is incorporate that at the portfolio company level the day we own the company. Um, and every portfolio company, we have metrics. Um, the teams that are, you know, doing the deals, we're thinking about, you know, so previously you think about EBITDA and KPIs. So it becomes part of your KPI landscape as an owner of the business. Um, because ultimately when you, the reason it's all important, hey, it's, it, it's important to do. Um, you know, every company should be an impact company. You know, so we, we, are, we are, you know, people are raising impact funds and, and the like, but I think the truth is, shouldn't every company have a, a vision of how they are, you know, impacting or changing society? So I think you're gonna do it, because ultimately on the exit, if you're exiting into the public markets and David can comment on this, people are gonna focus on that as a metric, like what have you done? I.e. The, the ones that have done better will get, come on, better premium prices and valuations over time, so it's self-fulfilling if you don't do it. So for us, it's very much quarter kind of at the opco level, <clears throat> because we can control these companies and you know, drive change at the front end. And some companies we buy are very good at it, and have already done some, and some companies have not done anything. So, you know, it's incumbent upon us as managers and owners of these businesses to do it. I think that's, that's the beauty of private investments and alternatives more broadly when it comes to the ESG conversation. Yep. Because for years, I would sit in rooms and people would say, ESG, and I'd say, what do you mean by that? And they'd kind of get this look on their face like, ooh, am I gonna give them the MSCI definition? Am I gonna give them the internal definition, right? I think what's interesting is, and this, a lot of this is coming from Europe, we're finally beginning to understand a framework for thinking about ESG investing in both a qualitative and a quantitative way. And a lot of this is a policy response to the fact that people just care more about the environment. And so whether it's looking at renewable energy assets, whether it's making you know, real estate properties more environmentally friendly, I completely agree with your point that it's so much easier to pull the lever at the portfolio company level or the individual asset level as opposed to what we saw in 2020 when you know, everybody wanted to go in and buy the clean energy ETF because they felt like they were doing the right thing and then it got way overextended and, and since has, has come back in. So you know, I, I think what's gonna be interesting to me about ESG going forward is the way that the S and the G make their way into the conversation. I think that there's still an overwhelming focus on the environmental aspect of all of this, because again, it's it's very easy to walk outside and say, hey, you know, this is the Hudson River looks pretty nice from from up here. I, I don't really want to want to mess that up. Um, I go back to my days right out of undergrad where I did manager research and portfolio construction, and and to us, the G was the most important thing. Yeah. I mean, if you got the governance angle right. You, you felt a lot more comfortable with the investment than if you did, you know, than if you were a little bit wishy-washy on them. And so I think governance is really gonna become increasingly important. That's where we're spending a lot of time focusing. And, and it, it spans the, the gambit, right? It's everything from internal audit, better risk control, independent boards, things of that nature, um, to other things, you know, having the right policies in place, and this is where it starts to bleed into the S a little bit, but having the right policies in place. I mean, something that struck me as somebody who's worked at a big bank for more than a decade is the renewed focus on the mental health of individuals. I think that that is gonna be a tremendous theme going forward because what the pandemic showed us was that you know, taking care of your people with free snacks isn't always enough. 
right? Some people need more help. And so it's about breaking down those barriers and being comfortable having these conversations that I think is really going to drive the evolution of how ESG is implemented at the portfolio level, um, you know, not just over the course of the next few years, but over the course of the longer term. Um, so it's not going away is the bottom line, as we've seen out of, uh, out of the Eurozone. Well, and to your point about the Eurozone, they're doing a lot of different things in terms of governance, the taxonomy, different policies. There are some discussions in the U.S. about enhanced disclosures for companies. Does that create best practices? Does that help the process um, in terms of, you know, at least getting everybody to start collecting the same types of data? Or what else can we be thinking about to carry that forward? I mean, my, my thought there is that regulation doesn't usually create best practices. I think that those tend to be organically, uh, organ more organically driven. But, you know, again, it, it, it gives us rules of the road. It gives us a more concrete framework for thinking about this than we've had historically. You know, you and I were, were chatting about crypto uh, before we came up here and the potential for regulation. And, and I would go as far as to say that regulation in that space could arguably be a good, a good thing. Right? You know, we have a lot of institutional investors that continue to sit on the sidelines with respect to all of these things broadly because they just want to understand the way the game is going to be play played. And as soon as you can give a clear explanation of these are the rules of the road, I think you'll see engagement at a level that you know, we've only really scratched the surface of up until this point. Yeah, having lived in Europe for 15 years, I mean, it's interesting because uh, having invested there for a long time, um, the regulatory overlays in Europe have always been very different and much more stringent. You know, and I, you have healthy debates about it. As, as we all know, the capital markets never developed to the same extent as they did in the US. The, Europe is a much heavier bank market. Um, uh, they've had regulations around private equity, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's a less liquid environment. That's fundamentally true. Uh, Europe is more inefficient. But I think on things like ESG, and I think increasingly on technology, I think they're ahead of the US. And there's some aspects to what they're doing that I think, you know, the US, I mean, so the pension funds in Europe were always, you know, they asked the questions earlier. And I think, you know, certainly our institutional investors now are asking those questions at every meeting. Um, but that was already done in Europe. So, you know, so I'm not a big, fan of regulation in, in many respects, maybe, may, maybe yes for crypto, but, but I'd say, um, but I'd say, you know, it's not, there's an element that you have to force, force it um, to some extent, but you know, you can, you can debate it heavily. For sure. Um, so as we get near the end here, let's talk about the exit environment. There have been a variety of exit strategies that people have been using lately, more focused on SPACs, direct listings, different things around the IPO market, different things around sponsor to sponsor deals. Um, we've already seen the SPAC market kind of start to fade into the background. So going forward, what does the exit environment look like to you? What are some of the things that you're watching out for right now? Maybe I'll start off. I'm, I'm the global head of SPACs at Apollo, <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping that that is, uh, actually it's interesting, um, so there's one of my new roles, uh, and so we, we, we had sold a number of our portfolio companies over the years to SPACs and gotten comfortable with it. Obviously, they've been around, um, you know, a good friend of mine, Martin Franklin, you know, started, you know, raised SPACs 20 years ago, being successful, so it, we, we kind of observed it you know, on, as an owner of assets and exiting into, into that market. Um, and, you know, a couple of years ago, we said it actually could be a great way for us, certainly for us as a firm, 
to look at the growth and disruption that's going on, and we haven't talked about growth, and the, the risks of, the positive aspects of disruption and the risks of all of, of the valuation. But the SPAC product was an interesting way for us to drive the business further into looking at higher growth companies. So that's why we're doing it. And, and we have six SPACs. Um, we always knew when we entered the market, like other markets, the BDC market, the REIT market, too many people go in. There's a period of dislocation. There's a shakeout, and then it kind of ends up in it. You know, and unfortunately, like everything else, shows how much capital there is in the world and the demand for equity risk as well. It literally went, you know, skyrocketed up, obviously, through, through, through 2020, which has created this big issue. So we all knew it was going to happen, and it's happened. So where do we go from here? We still think it's a product that's here to stay. We think it's going to institutionalize. We think it's, you know, when valuations are sensible um, and you get real money investors at the front end, um, a number of the players that have been stuck are stuck because their capital is stuck in the deals. Once that all cycles through, there will be a landscape that evolves out of this where the product, I think, stays, because I think it's an interesting product. You can debate, you know, yes, democratization of equities and people's ability to own, you know, high-growth companies in an earlier stage and the pluses and minuses of that, but it will stay. So we're using it as a tool. So I think on the exit, to, to your, your point, is I think the exit environment is as good as it gets. You know, you've got low rates, strategics looking for, for acquisitions, cost of capital very low. So you've you got the IPO markets. So IPO, SPAC, you know, strategic. So look, it's a phenomenal time to sell. And, you know, that's kind of every day we wake up, coming back to the comment I made on macro, and we say, look, you, you know, we want to, obviously, we're, we're continuing to invest our funds, but, you know, we're selling as much as we can. And it's a great environment. No, I mean, I, I would agree with you that this is, this is arguably as good as it gets. You know, when you find yourself in a Goldilocks environment where the Fed still seems kind of spooked of their own shadow and the amount that they've done, I mean, I certainly was caught by surprise during the back half of last year at the ability of, you know, both deal flow and exit activity to just come roaring back. You know, at the speed with which things moved last year is really what struck me. You know, I remember sitting there back in March and April and saying, eh, equity market high by the end of the year? Mm, probably not. And, you know, where were we in the, uh, where were we in the fall? And so, you know, the, the SPAC thing has been interesting. And I think it's, it's arguably good to your point that some of the, the retail wind has come out of those sales. Um, when it was trading above, you know, when you had SPACs trading above trust, that was a little bit of a, a yellow flashing light from, from where we sit. Obviously, the IPO market, um, given what the Fed did to, to the equity market more broadly in terms of providing support and elevating valuations, um, has been the primary exit for a lot of investors. Um, but I do think that, you know, you're seeing more on the corporate acquisition side. You're seeing more and more, you know, kind of add-on activity, carve-out activity, which I, I think is a good and interesting indicator of where we are in the cycle. People kind of moving away from true organic CapEx-driven opportunities to, hey, that's a proven business model, and we think that that could be additive to our bottom line, so let's kind of bolt it on here. Um, the, the interesting space to watch for me going forward is going to be the sponsor to sponsor market. You yeah. know, I, I do wonder in my heart of hearts, you know, so you have, you have a market where everybody's always looking for a deal. And that definitely caused some problems in 2020 and into the beginning of 2021 where sellers didn't, you know, the buyers didn't like the price that the seller was quoting and the seller didn't like the price that the buyer was quoting. And so as a share of overall exits, you saw that move well below its long run average. But I would, I would come back to something that you said earlier, which is 
this is a world awash in capital. And this is a world where you know, people are comfortable with what the monetary authorities are doing. Fiscal, I think, is what's gonna define this coming cycle. And when you have monetary and fiscal working in concert, I, I do think that it's gonna create a very robust environment from a macroeconomic perspective, which to my, by my lights could breathe life back into that sponsor-to-sponsor -sponsor market. Um, because again, the, the capital isn't the issue, yeah. right? It's valuation. And so as we move further away from the pandemic and as we see things more reflective of their long-term long value, that to me is when that part of the, the exit space will really end up coming back into vogue. Yeah, I think the other themes, I mean, I think the sponsor to sponsor business, and you know, in Europe it's actually much bigger than it is in the US, it always has been, because the number of primary deals is, is much fewer. But we've kind of looked at it, and we, don't, we, we obviously, we've done some sponsor to sponsor deals and made money. And so it's not, I think it's, it's very focused on the individual company. So an owner can, you know, Multiple owners can create value out of those companies. So the question of can, uh, how do you do it? Um, the continuation market is a very interesting development, which is we own a company, we've known it for seven, eight, nine, five to ten years, and we still think there's value. So will LPs and LPs have kind of exceeded to say, yeah, maybe, maybe moving these companies on from fund to fund or vehicle to vehicle is okay because, you know, ultimately they've seen value creation at every cycle. So that's a whole new theme coming back to, to, to you know, which, which I think will be a big theme going forward as well. But it's all, all, all of which to say is I think, you know, the demand and, and, the, and the competition for assets continues uh, and, and will do. Okay, well, we have one minute left, so I think we will leave it there, then try to ask another question in one minute. But are there any closing thoughts that you guys want to touch on about value creation? I mean, on value creation, no, I, I think we've covered a lot. I think the biggest question to me when I think about, you know, the environment today is not that there aren't opportunities, and I think, you know, the question is how do you originate credit, equity, real estate opportunities, and I think there's ways to do it. To me, I think the market environment is such that, you know, there is in the growth world, there's a bubble going on, we can see it and how that translates into, uh, there's a lot of disruption, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, but ultimately that will scale back. Um, it may not affect the private equity world that much, the traditional core private equity world, but to me that's, that's a big thing to watch. No, I completely agree. I think that, that growth in general, right, because of the macro, again, because of the macro environment we've been in has begun to command a, a premium. But, you know, I, I think what's interesting is that if you put yourself on the other side of the coin and you think about the, the investor, right, I mean, effectively alternatives have gone from optional to essential you're not gonna be able to hit your return targets unless you're investing in private credit, investing in private equity, investing in real assets, because public markets, you know, particularly given the returns we've seen over the past 12 to 15 months, a lot of that return has been pulled forward. Yeah. And taking it one step further, I mean, what would you rather do, own equity passively, or own equity where you can actually drive a better outcome at the end of the day. And so I think that the combination of longer fund lives coupled with you know, that, that stickier capital and the ability to drive operational improvement is gonna help a lot of investors realize their goals and very much create a, a, a tailwind for the alternative investment space that, that hasn't really been there um, up until this point. Good pitch. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Great. Great, well, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks, Thank you. everyone. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much, everybody.